In Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet sees a vision of the heavenly sanctuary in which he sees a golden lampstand with, with seven lamps and a bowl for oil atop it. And beside the golden lampstand, he sees two olive trees on either side of the lampstand continuously providing oil to the lamps. And an angel interprets this vision for Zechariah. And he says in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The day in which Zechariah prophesied was a dark and discouraging time in the nation of Israel. Jerusalem and its temple had been utterly destroyed 70 years earlier at the hands of the Babylonian forces. 20 years before Zechariah's vision... Some of the exiles had returned from from Babylon, including Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David and had been appointed by the Persians as governor of Israel. But the work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city had slowed to a halt amidst opposition from the surrounding peoples. And for 20 years, 20 years, the temple sat unfinished. Little more than a small rectangular stone foundation. But the word of the Lord to Zechariah was that God was on the move. The oil of the Holy Spirit would flow through these two olive trees who represented Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, the two leaders of the people of Israel, and would flow into the bowl of the golden lampstand, which represented the covenant people of God, Israel, and the seven lamps would once again burn brightly. The temple of the Lord would be finished, and Zerubbabel, who had laid the foundation 20 years earlier, would be the one to set the final stone in place and to see the temple of God completed. And this would transpire, says the angel, not by might and not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts, evoking from the people of God shouts of grace, grace to it. And he says that those who had despised the day of small things would rejoice in the house that the Lord their God would build. In Revelation chapter 11, and in particular verse 4, John takes up that vision from Zechariah chapter 4, and he fills it with new covenant meaning. In the last days, in these last days, God is building a new temple. An everlasting temple in which His glory will dwell forever from which a river of living water will flow, bringing life and healing to the nations. This new temple is not made of brick and mortar. It is built with living stones. People, saints, who formerly were sinners, Formerly were strangers and aliens, but now are fellow citizens and members of God's household who are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And each living stone is chosen by grace and is shaped and molded by the Spirit and is joined together into the whole structure which God is building in these days, a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by His Spirit, Ephesians 2, 19-22. And God is constructing this new covenant temple in the same way as in Zechariah's day. The oil of the Holy Spirit working in power through the servants of God, the olive trees, 
to shine the light of God's presence into the darkness of the world. And just as in Zechariah's day, this new covenant temple is being completed in the midst of great opposition from Satan and from the nations that are under his sway. This new covenant temple, which is the church, is built not with chisels and not with hammers, but with words. This new covenant temple is built through the labor of preaching, of proclamation, of prophecy. It is built when the people of God speak the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the message of salvation and judgment through Christ. This is what we have already seen in Acts chapter 2 when the whole church, both men and women, were gathered all together in one place and were filled with the Holy Spirit from heaven and they began to prophesy. They began to declare the mighty works of God to the pilgrims who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And Peter stood up in the midst of them and he declared to the crowd that what they were seeing is that which had been spoken through the prophet Joel. The day of the Lord had dawned, the Spirit had been poured out on all flesh, and the sons and daughters of God were prophesying with the effect that anyone, whosoever, would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Peter then preached Christ, crucified and risen and ascended and Lord of all. And the crowds were pierced to the heart. And they cried out, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responded, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. That's important. He bore witness with his words. And he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 living stones were placed upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets that day. I believe this is exactly what is pictured in Revelation chapter 11. The witnesses of Christ, the church, are pictured as two prophets who speak the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit amidst great opposition from Satan and from the nations that are under his sway. And they will continue to prophesy. They will continue to bear witness until their testimony is complete and the temple is finished. And when the last trumpet sounds, when the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, when the dead in Christ rise first and those who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds, we will look upon the temple in all her glory coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband and all that the redeemed saints will be able to say is grace, grace to it. This passage is glorious and it's complicated. It, it is probably the most densely packed chapter in all of Revelation when it comes to symbols and signs and images that need to be unpacked and examined and explained in order that we can get to the point and apply its truths to our hearts and hear and heed the call of this text. Last week we spent the entirety of our time in mostly verses 1 and 2, examining just two of those symbols, and I think there are seven that need to be examined. The first two were the temple and the time frame. You remember that the temple stands as a symbol for the church. It's the new covenant temple. The church. The inner sanctuary, 
the altar, and the holy priesthood. The church, its worship, and its people are measured, which refers to spiritual protection and preservation. The outer court, however, the visible reality of the church is not measured, but rather is given over to be trampled by the nations. And this refers to the persecution which the church will suffer as Jesus sends us out in this age as sheep in the midst of wolves. The time frame is twofold. The three and a half years, and you'll remember that 42 months is 1260 days, is time and times and half a time is Three and a half years, prophetically speaking. Those three and a half years refer to the entirety of this age of prophecy in the midst of persecution. The three and a half days at the end of this vision refers to the end of this age. So three and a half years refers to this age. Three and a half days refers to the end of this age. That time at the end when the beast will have appeared to have won the victory, but soon will be defeated by Christ when he returns to raise his saints from the dead and to destroy the great city. So we've seen the temple and we've seen the time frame. And if you weren't here last week, you need to go online and you need to listen to that message in order to understand how we got that from this. Because it's there. It's there. The third symbol, and here's where we will pick up on the back of your bulletin. The third symbol we need to unpack are the two witnesses in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. And if anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. All right, by now, you've probably picked up on the fact that I believe these two witnesses refer to the church in their role as the witnesses of Christ, the prophets of God in these last days. But let me give you four reasons why I think that's clear from Scripture. All right, four reasons. The first is simply that they're called witnesses, and the Greek word is the word martus, martus, from which we get our word martyr. And these witnesses, these martyrs, they give to the world a testimony, and the Greek word is is the same with only a minor difference, marturia. Okay, do you see the connection? The martyrs give the marturia, the witnesses bear witness, they give testimony. And the reason why that's important is because that same word, martus, martyr, witnesses, is the word that is used by Jesus in Acts 1-8 in the very final words that he spoke to his church before he ascended through the clouds to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. He gathered his church together and he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, my martyrs. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the same word that is used repeatedly by the apostles throughout the book of Acts to describe their calling and commission. They say over and over again, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, 5, 10, 13, 22, 26, we are witnesses who have come to bear testimony. That's how they understood their role in these last days. Jesus appointed authorized and empowered, not merely two witnesses, but his entire church to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age. 
your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, said Peter in Acts 2. Furthermore, when we turn to the book of Revelation, the word testimony is used nearly always to refer to the message of the entire church. Just follow along with me. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness, the testimony, the marturia that they had borne. Not just two, but all the witnesses of the church down through the age who bear testimony to the word of Christ. Revelation 12.10, 12.11 rather, they conquered him, speaking of the brothers in 12.10, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, their marturia, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay, who overcomes Satan? All the church, everyone who's covered by the blood of the Lamb, who has the word of testimony in their mouth, and who loves Jesus more than they love life. 12.17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony, the marturia of Jesus. All the offspring of the woman, the woman is the church understood as a corporate whole, kind of like the temple And the offspring are individual Christians, kind of like living stones. Every Christian is one who keeps the commandments of God and holds to the testimony of Jesus. Not just two witnesses, all the church hold to the testimony. Finally, Revelation 19.10. John says, Then I fell down at the feet of the angel to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Whole church holds to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. To be a brother, to be a saint, is to be a witness, to hold to the testimony of Jesus, to bear witness to Christ, to have the spirit of prophecy. It's referring to the same thing in the same group of people. So they're the witnesses of Christ, and the witnesses of Christ are the church. Second reason, not only are they called witnesses, they're called lampstands. Verse 4, the two witnesses are the two olive trees. The two witnesses of Revelation 11.3 are the two olive trees and the two lampstands of Revelation 11.4, which is a reference to Zechariah 4. The passage which we began with this morning. And in Zechariah 4, the lampstand refers to Israel, the people of God, and the olive trees represent the governor, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, the high priest, the leaders of the people of God. In John's vision, though, in the new covenant, the two witnesses are both the two olive trees and the two lampstands, again pointing to the fact that the two witnesses stand for the church as a whole. Furthermore, in Revelation 1.20, Jesus himself uses the image of the lampstand and equates it to the church. He's got the set, he walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, and he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands are the churches. The lampstands, the witnesses, are the church. Reason number three. They prophesy for 1,260 days, or three and a half years, or 42 months. Or a time, times, and half a time. They prophesy for 1260 days, a time frame that is used in Revelation only and always to speak of the church in this age. A point we made clear last week and that you connected to this morning. It is the time, this three and a half years, this time frame, it is the time during which the outer court of the temple, which is the church, is trampled. It's an age of persecution. It's a time during which the woman, which is the church, is protected from Satan and nourished in the wilderness. It's an age of preservation. And it's a time during which the beast oppresses the saints of God who are the church. Revelation 13, 5 through 7. All during which the church continues to prophesy. So this age is an age of proclamation, 
persecution, preservation of the church. And then the fourth reason. I want you to notice verse 7 of chapter 11. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Okay? Now look over at Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That is, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 12, 17, the dragon makes war on the church. Now look at Revelation 13, 7. And it was allowed to the beast to make war on the saints and to conquer them. War is made on the church, the saints. So when I read that the beast arises to make war on these two witnesses, I'm inferring that the beast is arising to make war on all of the saints. Therefore, the two witnesses are the church. Do you see it? Taken together, I think the evidence is conclusive. The two witnesses of Revelation 11.3 to which Christ grants authority to prophesy during this age are the same witnesses to which Christ granted authority in Acts 1.8. All his disciples. All his followers. All his church. Why the church is pictured as two witnesses is probably due to the requirement in the law of God that any charge or any offense within Israel had to be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, for instance. The point being is that when, when the nations stand before God in judgment, there's not just going to be one witness, there's going to be a multitude of witnesses, sufficient witnesses to establish their guilt. Their guilt in that the light came into the darkness and the people loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That they are pictured in sackcloth emphasizes the church's prophetic role in proclaiming the message of coming judgment and in calling the nations to repentance. It is not accidental that they are clothed in the same garb as Ezekiel and John the Baptist because we have the very same message. Judgment is coming. Flee from the wrath of God. The image of fire pouring out of their mouths to consume their foes serves two purposes in this vision. First, it is a graphic depiction of our spiritual protection. It does not and cannot mean that we will not be harmed. Because we have seen over and over and over again in the book of Revelation that as we prophesy, as we bear witness, as we give testimony to the word of Christ, we will suffer bodily, economic, social, and financial ruin. Just read the seven letters to the churches. What happened to them will happen to us. Remember God's promise during this age is spiritual protection through persecution, not physical protection from persecution. And your understanding of that point will make all the difference in the world with how you handle suffering. The church's faithful testimony will not be silenced in this age, though they are slaughtered like sheep. It's just like Paul said when he's languishing in a prison, in a dungeon in Rome, awaiting the day of his execution. And he wrote in 2 Timothy 1.9 that I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. We may be bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. We may be put to death for our testimony, but the word of Christ lives and we will rise and reign with Christ as well. Secondly, it speaks to their message when it falls on the ears of the unbelieving. It consumes them. See, to those who are perishing, the message of coming judgment is a torment. Look at verse 10. You want to know what your, what your testimony will sound like in the lips of many? But not all, but many. When the witnesses are finally killed... Those who dwell on the earth rejoice over their dead bodies. 
And they make merry and they exchange presents and they, they declare a holiday. Praise the Lord, the church is dead. Why? Why are they so happy? Because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell upon the earth. See, to those who are perishing, the message of coming judgment is a torment. It is the stench of death. And it serves to increase their guilt as they continue to unrepentantly reject and scorn the word of Christ. And so this is the, it's a picture of the prophetic calling. The calling of prophets to speak words of fire that purify those who are being saved and consume those who are perishing. That's what God told Jeremiah his task was. Jeremiah 5.14, Behold, I am making my words in your mouth as a fire, and this people as wood, and the fire will consume them. And the same thing will happen when we preach. Our words will torment and consume many, but they will purify and save many more. Verse 6 then identifies the two witnesses with the two most famous prophets of the Old Testament. It was Elijah who shut the sky for three and a half years such that it did not rain. It was Moses who turned the waters of the Nile into blood and struck the earth with every kind of plague. The point of these images is not that Moses and Elijah are going to come back bodily to the earth. It is rather that the church is going to prophesy in the spirit and the power of Moses and Elijah. Indeed, like Ezekiel before us, when we preach, the word of God will come in the power of the Holy Spirit and dead bones will rise to life. It is not a weak word that you proclaim to your children. It is not a weak and insufficient word that you proclaim to your friends. It is not a weak word that you are going to take to Nicaragua in a couple of months. It is not a weak and insufficient word that some of you that don't even know you're going yet will take to Cuba in January. You speak words of fire and words of power and words of life. That's the point of verse 6. So speak like it. You don't speak as if you're apologizing for these words. These words are not weak. They will abide and endure forever. And they are the power to call forth life out of which that which was dead. And faith out of that which was unbelieving. We prophesy during these last days, we are the witnesses of Christ, and we prophesy with power. Fourth symbol to examine is that of the beast. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The church will not bear witness forever. There will come a time when the testimony of the prophets is finished, when the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, when the full number of the servants of God who are to be killed is complete, and then the end will come. Verses 7 to 13 show us what will happen at the end of the age when the testimony of the witnesses, namely the church, is complete. Now, I'm not going to say much this morning about the beast because he is going to figure prominently in Revelation 13. We're going to spend a whole week on him. This apocalyptic figure that appears first in Daniel and then here in Revelation 11 and again in 13, and then we're going to see him cast into the lake of fire in chapter 20. But for the sake of time, let me just make two notes that factor into our interpretation of this vision. Two things you need to know about the beast to understand Revelation chapter 11. First thing you need to understand is that the beast is and was and is to come. The beast is and was and is to come. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. 
It, it was the last hour in the first century when John wrote, and it's still the last hour. So what John says to them is still true of us. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist, okay, insert beast, is coming, so many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. See, the beast stands in apocalyptic imagery, and that's what Daniel is, and that's what Revelation is. It stands for a demonic spirit who energizes kings and kingdoms throughout history to wage war upon the saints of God. Let me run that by you again because it's important. The beast is not just a future figure known as the Antichrist. No, John says, many Antichrists have already come. Many beasts have already come. They were there in Daniel 7. They were there in Daniel 8. They were there in Daniel 11 and 12. They were there in the first century when John wrote, and he'll be there at the end. The beast stands in this, in this vision for a demonic spirit who energizes kings and nations throughout history to wage war upon the saints of God. The spirit of Antichrist has been active from the beginning. It was the spirit of Antichrist, according to Daniel 8, who stirred up Antiochus Epiphanes against the faithful Jews in the second century B.C., who held fast to the commandments of God. He stirred up Nero and Domitian and the other Roman emperors against the faithful church in John's day. He stirred up the Catholic authorities against the reformers in the 16th century. He stirred up the communist regimes against the church in Russia and China and a thousand other places in the 20th century. He's stirring up the Islamic states against the faithful saints today. Anywhere kings and kingdoms have waged war upon the saints of God, the beast has stood behind them. That's note number one. But, note number two, at the end of the age, the beast will arise as never before to deceive all the nations into worshiping and following him in a final rebellion against God and a final attack upon God's people. The beast will arise at the end of the age to conquer and to kill the saints as never before. And it will appear that the victory is his and that he has succeeded in silencing the prophets of God and destroying the people of God and overthrowing the reign of God. But as we'll see, his victory, his apparent victory, will be short-lived in events that we'll explore in the coming chapters in greater detail. Fifth symbol, the great city, verses 8 to 10. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Without exception, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere in Revelation where that phrase, the great city, appears, it refers to Babylon. 1619, 1718, 1810, and about four other places in Revelation 18. Babylon stands in Revelation for the emblematic world city. That place where Satan has his throne, where the beast reigns, where idolatry and immorality are ways of life. In other words, the great city, Babylon, is not a literal geographic location. Rather, it stands as the capital city of the kingdom of this world. In Old Testament times, it was Babylon. 
where the saints lived as aliens in exile under wicked regimes. In John's day, the great city was Rome. At any given time, the great city, Babylon, maybe Berlin or Beijing or Baghdad, it may be Munich or Moscow, it may one day be Washington, D.C. The point is not its geographic location, but rather its character as the center of evil from which the beast rules the nations and wages his war upon the saints. It is marked, the great city, Babylon, it is marked by the perverse immorality of Sodom, the oppression and the bondage of Egypt, and the violent persecution to Christ and his people which marked Jerusalem. You can hear in the back of this text Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Matthew 23, 37. Stephen said to the leaders of Jerusalem, which of the prophets did you not kill? That the great city of verse 8 is not a single geographic location, but rather a worldwide spiritual kingdom is shown in verses 9 and 10 by the fact that peoples and tribes and languages and nations gaze upon the dead bodies of the witnesses and refuse to let them be buried. In fact, they celebrate their death with rejoicing and making merry and exchanging gifts with one another. What a picture of depravity. In other words, these are not two individuals and this is not one single city. What is being described here in rich symbolism is the worldwide slaughter of the saints at the end of the age, all at the behest of the beast. Sixth, we need to examine the resurrection of the witnesses. But after three and a half days, verse 11, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. All right, so the apparent victory of the beast will be short-lived, okay, only three and a half days as opposed to the three and a half years in which the church bore its prophetic witness. And after three and a half days, God will vindicate his church in the sight of all peoples by raising them from the dead and gathering them to himself. Notice, it is in the sight. Great fear fell on all those who saw them. They saw them, saw them, saw them, saw them. This is not a secret rapture. This is happening in full view of the whole world. God raises his dead servants. This is the end. This is the second coming of Christ when the king returns to rescue his servants and to establish his kingdom and to destroy his enemies. This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Come up here with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That's the seventh trumpet that's getting ready to sound next week. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It refers to the second coming of Christ. Notice how the saints follow the pattern of Jesus in Revelation 11. Just watch this. Just as Jesus testified to the gospel of the kingdom, so does his church. Just as Jesus was persecuted and killed for his gospel, so is the church. Just as Jesus suffered violent death in Jerusalem, so does his church. Just as the world rejoiced over his death, John 16, 20, so will it rejoice over the death of his church. Just as Jesus was vindicated in the sight of all peoples by resurrection, so will be his church. Just as Christ's resurrection was attended by an earthquake, so will be the resurrection of his church. And just as a Jesus ascended to his Father on the clouds, so will his church. Servant is not greater than his master. Rather, the servant follows his master wherever he goes. It's the way of the cross. It's Revelation 11. Finally, we see the end of the great city, which is to say the end of the world. The fall of the kingdom of this world. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
All right? So when Christ returns, he's not only coming to raise his church to life and gather them to himself, he is coming to overthrow the kingdom of this world and to bring the great city to its appointed end. So verse 13 describes the beginning of the last judgment. The phrase great earthquake makes that clear because the only other places in Revelation where the phrase appears are in 6.12 and 16.18, both of which refer to the end of the world. The final day of wrath inaugurated by the second coming of Christ. So one question that I, I considered as I was studying this is why, why only a tenth of the city? Why only 7,000 dying? And here's, here's what I think. I'm submitting to you, and I'm going to come back to this in a few weeks, that this, this middle portion of Revelation from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20, is comprised of seven vision cycles which describe the same thing, namely the, the persecution and prophecy of the church during this age leading up to the second coming of Christ from different angles. So the same thing is happening. But you'll notice a progression as we go through these. Not very many people die and not much of the earth is destroyed in the seals. A few more people die, and a few more are destroyed in the trumpets. You get to the bowls of wrath, everybody's dying, and everybody's being destroyed. You come to the final judgment where they bring the whole world before the white throne, and all the unbelievers whose names are not written in the book of life are tossed in the lake of fire. In other words, even though they're describing the same event, there's a progression in the severity of the judgment. And that's why. I think it's a literary device. It's not to say it's not the end of the world that only 7,000 and only a tenth of the city. It's just not that John's not done showing us this age yet. He's not done revealing to us all that's transpiring. The response of the unbelieving world to the appearance of Christ is twofold, right? Utter terror and an open acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth that, that the world has tried so hard to suppress in their unrighteousness will no longer be able to be denied. They will know on that day and will be forced to acknowledge that there is a God in heaven. He is wise and powerful and glorious. They have rejected his rule. They have trampled his glory. They have spurned his mercy. They have despised his son. They have persecuted his saints. And now it is too late. And the judgment that is coming upon them is just. It's no wonder John wrote in 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And that's not a wailing of repentance. It's a wailing of a despair that will know no end. Now, I told you at the beginning of Revelation 10 that these three messages were mission sermons. All three have described the prophetic role of the church in these last days. In Revelation 10, the church received its prophecy from heaven, right? The Father, to the Son, to the angel, to John, to the churches. Revelation 11 shows the churches as the witnesses of Christ giving this prophecy to our neighbors and the nations. Even while we're being trampled, though the inner sanctuary is protected, we will testify powerfully before the church is finally slain by the beast only to be raised to life again. So as we bring these to a close, I want to summarize the message of these three messages. What's the point of 10 and 11? Here's what I think it is, and I pray, I pray that God would cause his word to bear fruit this morning. Number one, as a result of these messages, you should know that you have a divine calling. You have received a word from heaven a word of salvation that tastes sweet on the lips and a word of judgment that is bitter in the stomach. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, and so we must. You cannot ignore it. We must bear witness. We must testify to the words of Christ, the word of salvation and judgment in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. To be a Christian is to be a witness. To be a son or daughter of God is to have the spirit of prophecy. 
You have a divine calling and a divine commission. So number one, I would say this text is calling you, speak, prophets of God. Don't be silent anymore. Speak, rise up and speak. Number two, we have a powerful calling. It is clear that we do not speak in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the authority of Christ. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and so you shall be my witnesses. In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and so the sons and daughters of God shall prophesy. We have the power to shut the sky and to turn the waters to blood. We have the power to breathe fire from out of our mouths. We have the word and the spirit that makes dead bones live. Do not dare to underestimate the power of the word and the spirit on your lips. They're so hard. They are are so hard, my my brother, my sister, my spouse, my children, my co-workers, they are so hard and they are so hateful and they are so resistant. You have a word that is like a hammer that shatters the bones. You have a word that is like a fire and it makes the people as wood and it, zoom, it consumes them. You have a word that is like the breath of God in their bones that raises the dead bones to life. You have power through the Holy Spirit, and you have a prophecy from heaven. So go forth and prophesy and just watch what the Lord will do. Third, just to be honest, we also have a dangerous calling. The inner sanctuary is measured and protected, it is sealed and secured. But God has given the outer court to be trampled by the nations. You are the aroma of Christ to the world. To those who are being saved, you are the aroma of life, the sweet savor of Christ. But to those who are perishing, you are the stench of death. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. The people of this world will hate you because they hate the aroma of of Christ. You smell like Jesus and they hate the way he smells. They will do anything to silence your voice because your words are a torment to them. Verse 10. Read the Bible. The prophets of God don't last long in this world. But their reward is great. Which brings us to the final point and with this we'll close. We have a glorious calling. God is using us to build his temple. This passage has been focused primarily upon the proclamation of judgment to those who will hate and persecute us and fall beneath that judgment. But the message of judgment is always attended by a call to repentance. The testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, is the testimony of God's wrath against sin, but also of God's mercy in Christ. And some will hear your message. They will. They will hear your message and they will repent and they will believe. And through your words, one by one, God God will cut living stones out of the rock of this world and he will place it in his new covenant temple and place it in its foreordained position until finally one day Jesus brings the top stone and completes his temple amidst shouts of grace. And then the end will come, Christ will return, his faithful witnesses, his prophets will be raised to everlasting life and joy, and the completed temple which is now in heaven will come down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband, and God will dwell in the midst of his people forever. You are his laborers in the construction of that temple, and it will not fail to be completed, which tells you That you speak, some will hate, and some will be pierced to the heart and will cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
And you will have the joy of being able to tell them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That'll be you. So go and preach. It's a glorious calling. So this this book, and in particular this chapter, Revelation 11, calls you in no uncertain terms, go, speak, pray, and die. Will you go? My Father, I pray now that you will complete the work of your word. I pray that you will call out, as we prayed already, I pray that you would call out mothers to speak to their children, their friends across the table from them, over coffee, over dinner, over the fence, dads to speak the word of God and the power of Holy Spirit to their children and to their friends at work. I pray that you will raise up members to say, never thought about going overseas before, and that you will raise them up to say, I want to go to Cuba, and I want to stand in living rooms, and I want to declare the glory of the gospel of Christ to people who have not heard, and I want to go to Nicaragua, and I want to give hope to the hopeless, and I want to give, I want to give the mercy of Christ to those who are drowning in the guilt of their sin. And people who never thought of getting up and going across the street to their neighbors will go. They'll go. They'll go because you have called them and you have empowered them and you have commissioned them and you have sent them. Raise up prophets. Ask in Jesus' name. I want you to pray. And then we're going to stand and sing. And I want you to ask just a simple question. Just one simple question. To whom will I go? Ask it to God. Lord, this week, this month, this year, to whom will I go? And Father, I pray as that question is being asked throughout this auditorium, I pray that you would grant the answer by your spirit to your child, to that friend, to the neighbor, to your west, to your east, to the north, to the south to Cuba, to Nicaragua, to some place we haven't even thought of going before. You ask that question, believer, witness, prophet, Lord, to whom shall I go?